All right, let me start with inviting you to open your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 14. That's going to be our main text today. Uh, Luke 14, last week we looked at the first part of Luke chapter 14. This week we're going to be in the second half. A lot of it will be on the PowerPoint, but if you're like me, you like to just follow along on a copy of, uh, of the text that you have in front of you. Uh, Quentin, I appreciate the, the communion thoughts today. I, I remember the dishwasher analogy, so I like your theme you have going. So thank you for leading our thoughts in communion, and I'm with you. My sunglasses are in the car, so I guess that sunglass theme that started earlier is kind of dying out now. And we'll just focus on the sermon. So let's get to Luke chapter 14, verse 28 through 32. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost? to see whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Uh, each week in our staff meetings, we kinda, we've been in this rotation of a different minister leading the, the text, study, devotional thought. And, and I'll give Jill full credit. She led this past Monday. And as we were discussing this text, Juan Garcia, our Hispanic minister, told us a story or, or used an example of the town that his dad grew up in in Mexico. He said that in this town, there's this big, beautiful, elaborate, yet unfinished castle. A guy named Sir Edward James came into town many, many years ago and felt like this part of Mexico was very beautiful, and that's where he wanted to settle down and live. And apparently this guy had a lot of money, and he started to build this castle, but never finished. And this is just a small glimpse. It's huge. It, it goes on back behind uh, and the, it overlooks the mountains. It's this beautiful thing. There's a lot of pictures online if you wanted to look it up. Uh, but Juan was telling us, you know, it's basically useless. Nobody can live in it because it's unfinished, so tourists come and view it, but that's about it. And it can be dangerous because, as you see in this picture, you could walk up that staircase, but it takes you nowhere. You could follow a trail that they made several trails out in the mountains, and some of those trails lead you nowhere. Juan said that he brought their son Christian uh, to visit this when Christian was younger, and it was dangerous because sometimes you couldn't tell if you were on the second or third floor. A beautiful castle that was completely unfinished. This guy came into town, started to build, and wasn't able to finish. So a few months ago, when I was putting my kids to bed sometimes, and this is Kind of a trick that I'll share with you parents, so it's a tip for you. If your kids won't go to sleep, uh, what I do sometimes is I play them a sermon. And sometimes I'll play one of my own sermons, and it works. Uh, it'll put them to sleep, as it does some people each week. I made that joke in the first service, and there was a guy dozing off during the sermon. And I kind of thought, funny to myself as I was preaching. But anyways, uh, one night I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Wayne Cordero. Uh, he's been a preacher in Hawaii for many years, and he wrote a book that I was reading at the time. So I wanted to look him up. Usually you can find somebody online, and I found one of his lessons. About five minutes into this lesson, as my kids were dozing off, uh, he said something. It's not, it didn't originate with him. This quote didn't originate with him. But as soon as he said it, 
it grabbed a hold of me, and it's not left me alone since then. And in the sermon, he very casually said, we all know that it's a lot easier to start something than it is to finish. It's a lot easier to start something than it is to finish. I have dwelled on that for a few months now, especially when it comes to my own faith journey and the faith journey of many others. But if you think about it, we all love to start something new. We love the excitement of something new. How many of you, and maybe you don't have to raise your hand, just think to yourself, how many of you have an unfinished project around your house? You don't nudge your spouse right now, but okay, so we got some honest people. You know, we get these big ideas, we buy the material, the paint, the wood, whatever it would be, and we get started and we're excited about it, but then we get tired and we don't really finish it. Or, or uh, everybody's pointing at each other right now. So we'll try a different example, New Year's resolutions. Some of you make New Year's resolutions or you have a goal or a commitment at the beginning of each year, and now we're in month number two, and how often do we start to trail off when we get into February? We want to diet, we want to lose weight, we want to do this or we want to do that. We can start it, and we can start it with enthusiasm, but it's harder to finish. Or think about marriage. I used this example earlier. Oftentimes, people want to have ideas of how to invest in their own marriage, and okay, let's come up with this plan. We're going to go on at least one date night a month. And you have good intentions in your marriage, but life happens. The kids get sick. The unexpected happens. And before you know it, it's been six months since you've been on some kind of date night. Or I think about church and how often over the years, my own experience, somebody has a grand new idea, ministry initiative that they start. And I think some people have like an extra spiritual gift for just creating a buzz in the atmosphere and getting people excited. But I often think they're starting it, it's new, it's exciting, but where are they going to be six months from now? Where are they going to be two years from now? Where is this gonna, what's going to happen with this five years from now? Are they going to finish what they started? So we all know it's a lot easier to start something than it is to finish. And the passage that we read, and just, just a moment ago to start this lesson, Luke 14, verse 28 through 32, Jesus uses two examples. One is a guy who starts to build a tower, but apparently he didn't estimate the cost to begin with, so he wasn't able to finish building, and he was embarrassed. People ridiculed him for this. That's what he was known for. The other example is about a king going off to war and estimating the cost, so he doesn't put all of his soldiers in danger. Because if he only has 10,000 and he's going up against an army of 20,000, maybe he needs to slow down a little bit and make sure he's ready. So Jesus, essentially, I think, is talking about finishing what you started or counting the cost before you begin to make sure you can see it all the way through. The context of this passage is about discipleship. So what does counting the cost have to do with discipleship? Why would Jesus teach us to count the cost of following Him? And I think, personally, it's because following Jesus isn't easy. Following the path of the cross is not an easy invitation. But yet, this is what Jesus extends. So it's, it's easy to start. It's easy to begin the road of discipleship and to say yes to Jesus and get involved and rededicate your life. But it's much harder to stay the course. And I'm going to come back to this idea in just a minute. But what I want to do right now is just read the surrounding context of Luke 14 
verse 25 through 27, and then verse 33, to kind of get a bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 28 through 32 is the two examples he uses of a guy building a tower or king going to war. We'll skip that since we already read it. Go down to verse 33. So therefore none of you, therefore none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. So you first read this and it's like, wow, that's a little bit extreme. That sounds a bit radical. Three different times in these four verses, Jesus says, if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. If you don't hate your family and life itself, you can't be my disciple. Uh, Before the first service this morning, I was flipping through the PowerPoint. There was a young lady that was already here. She got here early, and she saw the screen, and she said, it says hate in your sermon. And I was like, it does, because Jesus said it, and I'll explain why in a minute. But unless you hate your family, you can't be my disciple. Unless you carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you're willing to give up all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean by that? Several years ago, I read this story about a a young family, a a young mom, actually, who was raising two kids. She was working a full-time job. Her husband had to travel a lot for work, so she was on her own quite often. And she was stressed out and worn out with motherhood and life. And she came to her minister one day and she said, I'm never reading the New Testament again. And he was like, whoa, what's going on? Why would you say that? She said, I read through the Gospels and Jesus has nothing positive to say about families. Instead, he teaches like, you got to give everything up to follow me. Leave your family behind to follow me. Or hate your family in order to follow me and be a disciple. She said, how can you do that and be a responsible parent? I think she's missing the point of what Jesus is teaching. And that could be a whole different discussion, because usually there's a deeper meaning. But she does raise some good questions. Why does Jesus, in Luke 14, verse 26, why does he use the word hate? That's such a strong word. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I mean, Jesus is God incarnate, shows us the love of God, teaches us to love one another, and then here he uses this word hate. It doesn't sound very Christ-like. Well, if it makes you feel any better, if you looked at the parallel to this in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew softens it a little bit. Matthew 10, verse 37 and 38, and this is kind of the equivalent here. Instead of saying, hate your family, he says, if you love them more than me, Instead of saying, you cannot be my disciple, Matthew says, you're not worthy of me. Okay, maybe that's a little bit easier to read. So if Luke 14 bothers you, well then look at Matthew chapter 10. But I read this, and the first word that comes to mind in Luke 14 is this is shocking. It's jarring. And that is intentional. Jesus does this on purpose. There's a shock effect to it. But to be honest with you, I'm not really surprised anymore. As we've been studying through since January, uh, Luke chapter 9 through Luke chapter 19, 
the tensions keep rising in the Gospel of Luke, and, and really everything Jesus teaches is shocking one way or the other. So I might be offended, but I'm not surprised anymore. Oftentimes, Jesus used exaggerated language or hyperbole to stress a point. Other times in the Gospels, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out. Hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Foot causes you to sin, chop it off. Wow, that's a strong teaching. Or later in the Gospels, he says, if, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble or sin, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and drown at sea. Those are also extreme teachings, but I think we would all agree that that's exaggerated language, it's hyperbole. Jesus is using a teaching method to stress the point, and we're not supposed to take that literally, although we are supposed to take that seriously, because there's a deeper meaning. And I think it's the same thing when Jesus uses this word hate, is he doesn't literally want us to hate anyone but he's using this exaggerated language to stress a point. And basically, the summary of Luke 14, 26 would be Jesus is and should be top priority. That your allegiance to Christ should be more important to you than your allegiance to anything else, even biological families, any organizations that you're a part of, and even political parties. Your allegiance to Jesus is your top priority priority. And I think that's why it sounds so extreme. He's saying count the cost. Make sure you're ready to make this the most important thing in your life. Now I do think that Luke 14, especially verse 26, that there's a nice little twist in it. You're going back to that mom that said how do you do this? You know, how can you be a responsible parent when Jesus says to hate your own family? She was missing the deeper meaning because if we can grasp this, and if we can truly learn to live this out, I actually think it makes us a better family member. Giving total allegiance to Jesus can make you a better family member. It can make you a better husband or father or parent or child or sibling, however, whatever family relationships you're thinking of, because following Jesus kills the thing that kills most relationships. Selfishness damages and hurts and kills these relationships. Oftentimes the ones that are most important to us, but denying ourselves and giving everything up to follow Jesus, carrying our cross, that actually helps us in our relationships to be more selfless. And when we do that, we actually improve our family relationships. So think about it like this. We have our seven commitments, and commitment number four says we will nurture marriages and young families. We've already mentioned that the year 2022, this is one of our main focus areas. And we have some things in the works, some things that are being discussed and planned and prayed about, how we can really pour into marriages and young families. But I'll say this now, and I'll keep saying it, that if we're really going to live out this commitment and take this commitment serious, we can only do that at the level to which we are willing to commit to Jesus. Because without Jesus, then we're just another program and organization. But your commitment to Jesus will make you a better family member. It will help your marriage. It will help your family. Not that everything's going to be perfect, because every family is dysfunctional in a way. 
But Jesus is calling us to total allegiance to Him, and that helps us live out this commitment. Every time we talk about Jesus, every time we talk about discipleship or this ongoing transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, every time we talk about spiritual maturity, whether it's a sermon or a Bible class, that that will help your marriage. That will help your family if you start to take hold of that. And it takes hold of you and you live it out. So Jesus uses the word hate. Jesus uses the word cross, carrying your own cross in verse 27, or carrying the cross and following me. That may not sound very extreme to us, but that is very shocking, and here's why. Think about the original audience that heard Jesus say this. This is before Jesus has died on the cross. So what they know about the cross is that the cross is reserved for some of the worst criminals or those who rebel against Rome, and it was Rome's way of torturing you to death, a horrible way to die, Now, we think of it a little different because we know what the cross represents. But back then, carry your cross and follow me. That would have been shocking. And then in verse 33, when he says, if you don't give up all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Three very extreme and radical calls to discipleship. Which again, I think it's why Jesus tells us to count the cost. It started with verse 28 through 32. Count the cost. And go back to this quote, it's a lot easier to start something than it is to finish. And I think what Jesus is inviting us into is not just a momentary adventure of discipleship, but a lifelong pursuit of following Jesus. That's kind of the way I'm hearing it, at least in my life right now. Will you keep following Jesus when the rubber hits the road, when the going gets tough, Or when the cross gets heavy, will you keep following Jesus for the long haul? One of my favorite um, stories, Olympic stories, came from the 1968 Olympics. This is kind of a grainy picture of it, but this runner's name is Joseph Aquari. He represented Tanzania in the marathon. And not long after the race started, I'm not sure how far into it, uh, there was a pack of runners running kind of close together, and apparently there was a collision, and Joseph Aquari and several other runners hit the pavement, and he tore up his shoulder and his knee. I think that you know, some sources say he dislocated his knee. He was pretty badly hurt. So he had to stop the race, receive medical attention. They bandaged up his shoulder and his knee, and assuming he would go on to the hospital, and he was done. Instead, to everybody's surprise, he jumped back out there and he kept running. Although he was going at a much slower pace, and although he knew there was no way he was going to win at that point, to everybody's surprise, he just kept running. And by the time you see in this picture, he's getting close to crossing the finish line. All the other runners had crossed the finish line hours before him. It was night. Most people had left the stadium. And here he comes, running with that bandage flapping in the wind, limping across the finish line. And he was interviewed afterwards, and it's now pretty famous, but they asked him, why did you carry on? You were injured. You had the perfect excuse to stop. Why did you finish the race? You weren't going to win anyways. And he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles just to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. It's much easier to start something than it is to finish. And Jesus is telling us, count the cost. 
Because I want you to keep being my disciple, keep growing as my disciple years from now, Lord willing. And maybe, you know, I've preached Luke 14 many different times in my life, uh, whether it's a, a class or a sermon, and almost every time I've preached Luke 14, I've focused on kind of the extreme radical call of discipleship. And maybe it's just where I'm at right now in my own journey. What really hit me this time was verse 28 through 32, the guy especially who started to build a tower but wasn't able to finish. So discipleship, maybe it's kind of like a marathon. Maybe at first it's like a sprint and you're all excited and you're making some big changes in your life, but will you stick around for the long haul? Will you endure? Will you persevere? I've had several people over the last few months, I say several, a few, that have talked to me in a very serious conversation saying, I'm ready to rededicate my life to Christ. And what follows that is I'm doing these devos, I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to church every week, and all of that sounds great. And I try to be honest with people, and what I've told them is, man, I'm happy for you, I'm excited, but we'll see how committed you really are six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. Because that will be the proof of how serious you really are. Can you persevere? Can you endure? Can you continue to follow Christ and finish what you started? And I'm going to go back to the scripture reading that Caden read for us earlier today. And I'll just read verse, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. I won't read the whole, uh, all eight verses again. But this is what Paul tells Timothy, this young minister, in his last letter to him that we have. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Man, this is a beautiful passage. We know the journeys of Paul. You read through the New Testament, and you see all the ups and downs that he went through. It started with this call from Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I believe Paul counted the cost and he still said yes to following Jesus through all the persecutions, through all the sleepless nights, through all the floggings and beatings and being left half dead and being shipwrecked and all the unknown, probably more downs than there were ups in Paul's life. He counted the cost and he said, I stayed in the fight. I fought the good fight. I never gave up. I kept the faith and now I'm finishing the race. And I look at our life, and I look at Luke 14, and I think, I hope we can say the same thing. When our time is coming to an end, we stayed in it. We stayed with it. Jesus stays with us. We stayed with Him. Fought the good fight, and we'll finish the race. It's a lot easier to start something than it is to finish. And I'll remind you as we conclude that we started this sermon series, and we're still in it, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke 9.51 tells us that Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem, or Jesus resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't arrive in Jerusalem until chapter 19, so it's the the on-the-way section, the journey to Jerusalem, which Luke spends the most time on out of any gospel writer, and what we're looking at are the unique texts in Luke and all that. But I just want to remind you that 
as Jesus teaches this about discipleship in Luke 14, he's in the process of walking to the cross. Jesus has counted the cost. And he's not going to be like that man who started to build a tower and wasn't able to finish. He's not going to be like the king who doesn't count the cost before he goes off to war. Jesus has counted the cost. He has deemed us worthy. And he went to Jerusalem and he finished what he started. And the invitation that he gives us is will you join him? Or if you've joined him a long time ago, will you keep saying yes and continue to join him? Let's stand and continue to sing. To the river I am going.